Well, over the past couple weeks during our Sunday evening time together, uh, we've been taking a closer look at some visions that men of God in the Scripture uh, experienced, that they had from the Lord. God gave them something special in a vision. They, they saw something. And uh, first we looked at Isaiah's vision in Isaiah chapter 6 about his, uh, he saw the, the reigning Christ seated on the throne, high and lifted up. And then last week we looked in Acts chapter 9 at Paul's vision of the resurrected Christ. Paul was a persecutor of Christians, followers of the way, and Jesus appeared to him while he was traveling to Damascus and changed his life. Paul saw the light of the world. Tonight we're going to turn our attention to Revelation chapter 4 and 5 to read about John's vision concerning the returning Christ. All right, Revelation chapters 4 and 5, and we're going to look at the entirety of both of those chapters. And it's, it's not too long of a passage, so don't get too worried, okay? Uh, but here's just a, a little bit of information about John while you're making your way to Revelation 4 and 5. John is called the beloved apostle. He was Jesus's friend as well as his follower. And John received this vision of the returning Christ while he was living in exile. He had preached the gospel too good, right? So the Romans uh, arrested him and uh, sent him out to this island called Patmos. And it was, uh, it was about five years uh, from the end of the first century AD when John uh, penned this, uh, this letter. This letter was actually written to seven churches uh, just a, a little ways away from Patmos and it made its circulation through those uh, seven cities and the churches in those seven cities. John was the last living apostle of the original 12 that Jesus had called. And uh, like I said earlier, the, the Roman authorities had had him arrested for ministering and preaching the gospel in the city of Ephesus. They shipped him out to Patmos about 120 miles uh, southwest of the city of Ephesus. And John saw a series of events unfold as the Lord revealed these things to him. And he wrote it down, and we call it the book of Revelation. All right? So it, it's worth noting at this point that the primary purpose of Revelation is not to disclose everything about the end times. That's not why John got the vision. That's not why he wrote. Rather, he wrote to prophesy of the second coming or the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the reason why preachers who know the Bible will, will lovingly admonish you if you ever call it the book of Revelations. John didn't have revelations about a whole bunch of stuff. He had the revelation that Jesus was coming back. All right? Um, so it, it's not revelations with an S, on the end, it's revelation. Though John did see a great many things in his vision, the object of his vision centered in the soon return of the person, Jesus Christ. And that's why this book is not called Revelations about the End Times. Rather, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right, so my sermon tonight's not going to cover the book of Revelation in its entirety. If you want that, Josh Clem's done a good job the past couple weeks, and he's still got a couple more weeks to go. Uh, so if, if you're sitting here and you're like, man, I, I wish I knew more about Revelation, I'm not going to be offended at all if you walk out and go to the choir room and listen to Josh, all right? He's, a, he's doing a good job going through the details of that book. Uh, but here's just the short 
simple summary outline of the book in, uh, in one verse so that we can kind of get a grasp on what John sees in Revelation 4 and 5. And it comes from John's own hand. Uh, just listen to this verse, Revelation 1.19. Write the things which you have seen. That's Revelation chapter 1. Write the things which are. Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And write the things which will take place after this. That's Revelation chapter 4 through 22. So whereas Isaiah's and Paul's visions that we looked at the past couple weeks had to do with the Lord's work in their own lifetimes, John's vision in Revelation 4 and 5 had to do with Christ's work yet to come in the future, chiefly. What John got to see was basically the, the invocation or the welcome or the beginning of the eternal worship service in heaven. John got a vision of God's glory. Let's read together Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Let's just look at uh, the first four verses to start off with. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance." Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. So the first thing that John got to see in this vision of God's glory is this. John had a vision of himself standing in the Father's presence. John had a vision of himself standing in the Father's presence. Um, so... John uses some vivid language to describe his experience throughout the book of Revelation. And many times it sounds strange because John's experience was honestly strange. So he related what he heard and what he saw to things that he knew from experiences he had had. So when it, when it says things like the voice that was speaking to him was like the sound of a trumpet, I mean, you kind of stop and wonder, what exactly did that voice sound like? To John, it sounded like a trumpet, so that's why he wrote with this kind of language. But it was a different kind of sound, a different kind of speech than he had heard just coming out of a person's mouth if you were talking with an individual face-to-face. -face. So this, this sound was interesting, like a trumpet, and, and the voice said, Come up here and let me show you what must take place after these things. So what he's about to see is things that are going to take place in, in the future. And, uh, and his vision is, is interesting because immediately when he hears that voice, it's almost like he doesn't have a choice. The voice says, come up here, and he's there. He's there, and uh, he's there in the Spirit, so it, it, he knows that this is something different than just a physical experience. John is having a spiritual vision from the Lord. And what he sees is a throne that is standing in heaven. Uh, we're not as familiar with thrones because our president doesn't sit on the throne of a nation, right? He sits behind a desk in a, in a chair. Uh, but kings sit on thrones. A throne is a sign and a symbol of power, of supreme rule and authority. 
The one who is seated upon the throne of heaven is the king of all. So like Isaiah, John has a vision of the throne. But unlike Isaiah, he sees something very interesting. He sees one sitting on the throne, but he, he can't really make him out. In fact, it says he who is sitting on the throne is like a, a jasper stone. Later on, John uses that same word, jasper, uh, to describe a, a crystal clear rock in Revelation chapter 21, uh, verse 11. So this, this might be uh, diamond or diamond-like in appearance because it, it refracts all the colors of the light spectrum and it's almost like light itself is exuding from this one who is seated upon the throne. He's so bright and so magnificent, yet it's, it's something that's solid. You, know, you, you can't touch light. You can move your hand through a light ray, but John, John sees someone sitting there on the throne, brilliant and radiant. And it says that there's a rainbow around this throne, like an emerald in appearance. And then he doesn't just see one throne, but he sees 24 thrones all around this one. And on each of those 24 thrones, there's an elder who's seated and clothed in white garments, golden crowns on their heads. We'll talk about these elders a, a little more in a few moments, but for now, these, these are the, the under rulers, if you will that God has appointed to help him as he reigns. Not that God needs the assistance of these people, but that he has gotten these people to understand his power and glory, and he is allowing them to rule with him as his, part of his creation. They're clothed in white, which is a symbol of their purity. They've been washed clean, and they have golden crowns on their heads, a symbol yet again of purity with the metal gold itself but also of power, the crown upon their heads. John has this vision of himself standing in the Father's presence. And it's quite something, I would imagine, for him to behold. He is in the throne room of heaven itself. He can't exactly see face to face the one who's seated upon the throne. And we know from elsewhere in Scripture that no man can see God and, and live. John recorded that earlier in John chapter 1, verse 18. Even when Moses wished to see the Lord, the Lord said, Moses, you, you can't see my face and live. No man can do that. But Moses, if you want to see my glory, here's what I'll do. You hide in the cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you and protect you, and I'll pass by, and, and you'll just see my hind parts, my, my heels, if you will, kicking up dust as I pass by. John got to witness something that very few people, if any, had gotten to see. In Isaiah's vision, we, we talked about even though Jesus hadn't been born yet, Isaiah saw Christ seated upon the throne. Paul, on the road to Damascus, saw the resurrected Christ. Here, John sees the Father seated upon the throne. And even though he can't see him face to face because his glory is just too much to behold, he's there in the Father's presence. And before we go any further, just let that sink in and soak in. He's standing in the presence of the Almighty God. I mean, not just in a church building where people are singing praises to God and you know He's there, but you can't physically see Him. John can see Him, but he can't see Him. It's like he, he wants to look, but he can't. His eyes burn because that light is so bright and so glorious. 
And there he finds himself. And I imagine like any one of us would be, he kind of goes, what am, what am I doing here? Why, why do I get to see this? And then his, it, it goes on to, to talk about through the rest of chapter 4, it wasn't just that John had a vision of himself standing in the Father's presence, but he had a vision of the creatures and the 24 elders singing of the Father's power. Let's keep reading in verse 5. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. I mentioned this last week to you. If, if you remember in the Old Testament, any time that God appeared to his people, the mountains would shake, the earth would tremble, lightning and clouds would come in the sky, big old thunder peals would roar throughout the heavens. There, was also, there were also seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. You ever wanted to look through water and see everything that's on the bottom there, no matter how deep it is? This is the kind of picture that John is, uh, is painting here. And in the center, around the throne, there were four living creatures. And they were full of eyes in front and behind. Nothing escaped their notice. The first creature was like a lion. The second creature like a calf. The third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. God's throne is mentioned 11 times in verses 1 through 11. I don't know if you caught that as we were reading through those verses, but you keep seeing this throne repeated. It's a sign and a symbol of God's power. These four living creatures that John sees and writes about are the four cherubim from Ezekiel's prophetic vision in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel chapter 1 and 10, he talks about these creatures. But there, Ezekiel sees all around them, and each one of them has the face of a man, an ox, an eagle, and a lion, with eyes all around them. These creatures are magnificent, kind of similar to what Isaiah saw. He saw the seraphim, the six-winged creatures in his vision that we talked about a couple weeks ago, but these creatures are a little bit different. They're gathered there around the throne of the Lord, and they're worshiping him with this song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. It be, the it, this song begins the same way the seraphim song did in Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy. It's repeated three times. And, uh, and scholars have had a few different thoughts about that. We, we believe we worship one God, eternally existent in three persons, right? So the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they are holy, holy, holy. We also believe that God has been forever, is right now, and will be forever. That is, He is holy eternally. He is holy, was holy in eternity past, is holy now in the present, and will be holy in eternity future. These creatures are singing this song. It, it's kind of this idea that they're singing it over and over and over again. But unlike that little DVD menu that plays over and over in the background, we forget to turn the TV off, this song's not annoying. This song is something to behold. It's almost like 
they can't sing it enough, and John couldn't hear it enough. He hears them praising the Father with this song over and over. And all the while that they're singing it, it's not just words that are coming from these creatures. It's a genuine expression of giving God the glory that He's due. Notice they're not just giving lip service, they're giving glory and honor and thanks to this one who sits on the throne. And he lives forever and ever. So the idea is that this praise is never going to stop. This song is going to continue. And John hears this first song of the four living creatures. It's the song of God's eternal holiness. And then uh, here's what happens in verses 10 and 11. It says the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. This is the first song of the 24 elders about God's creative purpose. They're singing of God's worth. They're telling him to receive glory and honor and power because of his power in creating everything. If you look in the Old Testament, you may not want to do this. This is a pretty magnificent challenge, but you can if you want to. Um, If you look through the Old Testament, there's only one subject that is ever used with the verb create. Man never creates anything. God is the only one who creates In the Old Testament, men make things, men discover things, and men find things, and men do things, but God is the only one who is able to actually create something new out of nothing. And this is the power that these elders are singing about. These 12 elders, sorry, 24 elders represent God's redeemed. Um, A couple different ideas that, that are out there is that Uh, Twelve of them are the Israelite tribal heads from the Old Testament. And the other twelve are the apostles of the the New Testament church. Some think that these 24 are just kind of representative of 24 rulers over all of God's redeemed and that we shouldn't necessarily think of them as the tribal leaders in Israel or the apostles in the New Testament. They just represent all of the redeemed throughout all of the ages. Either way, here's what they do. Instead of wearing their crowns and sitting on their thrones and thinking of themselves as God's important people, they choose not to sit on their thrones but to fall down in worship. Wouldn't that be something? If a a ruler, if a king, if a a queen in this world, just imagine the, the queen of England falling off her throne intentionally and bowing herself down to give glory to someone else. These elders are falling down before the Lord, even though they're reigning upon thrones with crowns on their heads to worship Him because He's the one that's worthy of glory and honor and power. And not only do they fall down, but they take those golden crowns off of their head and they cast them at His feet. Because in the presence of the Lord, there is absolutely no one who can say, I deserve to be rewarded for what I've done. I deserve to be honored for who I am. Rather, every single person who has a personal encounter with the Lord, whether it's an angelic being or a human being, 
falls down in worship. Only God is creator. He made everything out of nothing. And these elders sing the song of his creative purpose. So John had a vision of himself standing in the Father's presence. Verses 1 through 4 of chapter 4. John had a vision of the creatures and elders singing of the Father's power. In verses 5 through 11 of chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, John had a vision of all creation singing Jesus' praise. Let's read chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book, or a scroll, if you will, rolled up parchment. It was written inside and on the back, and was sealed up with seven seals. Just something interesting to note, Roman wills, or Roman documents, the ones that were important, were sealed on the edge with seven seals as a testimony to the veracity of the document, and also as a sign that only the intended recipient was allowed to break the seals and read the contents of the scroll. Verse 2, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one, no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth, that is, nobody anywhere, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. It's almost like that great moment comes, you know, when uh, maybe a speaker's about to come out on the stage and somebody says, and ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome... And I just imagine everybody kind of looks around and go, wait, the one who's sitting on the throne has the scroll, but nobody can open it, nobody can read it. In fact, John is just kind of demoralized by this. Look at at verse 4. Then I began to weep greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. It's like John's heart is broken. God in heaven, the one seated on the throne, has this scroll, this book, to be read, and nobody can read this word. But one of the elders, verse 5, said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome, so as to open the book, or the scroll, and its seven seals. This scroll is perhaps best understood as as God's title deed to creation. The inheritance of His eternal kingdom, if you will. Who can open it but the Creator and Redeemer, Jesus Christ? We sang the the song earlier, uh, Is He Worthy? The question, is is He worthy? And then, yes, He is. He he is worthy is the answer. In verse 5, Jesus is called both the Lion of Judah... And the root of David. Um, This kind of goes back to some Old Testament language. When Jacob was praying a blessing over Judah, his fourth son, he said, And Judah shall be a lion's whelp. In other words, he'll have the strength and the authority and the power of a roaring lion. What other animal in the field is going to stand against such a powerful creature? In fact, it was through Judah that Israel's kings would come to reign. 
David himself was a descendant of Jacob's son Judah and reigned upon the throne of Israel over God's people. But Jesus isn't just called the Lion of Judah. He's also called the Root of David. And this is something interesting to think about. Jesus is both a descendant of David, a descendant of Judah, but is also the creator of David's life. The one who gave David his covenant promise that he would always have a descendant to sit upon his throne. In fact, Jesus presented a riddle to the Pharisees one time. How can the Christ be called David's son and David's Lord at the same time? Jesus is both the descendant of David and the root of David. He's the Lion of Judah and also the author of Judah and his life. When one of the elders tells John to look, I kind of imagine he was going, all right, I'm going to get to see something spectacular, and he would. But instead of seeing a lion, he sees something else. Look at verse 6. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb, not a lion, but a lamb, standing as if slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. A horn was a symbol of uh, power and authority upon an animal. These seven eyes are a, a symbol that he sees everything. There's nothing that escapes his vision. Verse 7 says, and this, this lamb, he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. John can't even look at this one that's seated upon the throne, yet this lamb can walk up to the throne and take this scroll out of his hand. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This is the new song of the creatures and the elders. Worthy is the Lamb to take the book and break its seals. Why was he worthy? Because he was slain. He was slain. Notice this lamb that John sees is very much alive, but it looks as though it has been killed. That is, the, the scars, the wounds are still present. It was those scars and those wounds of Jesus on the cross that purchased the redemption of people. It was the payment, the punishment for our sins. This lamb that was slain is worthy to take the scroll because he shed his blood in payment to receive this scroll, this title deed. His blood was shed and the scars are still visible and the creatures and the elders move from singing holy, holy, holy and worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. All of a sudden their song changes. Why? Because the Lamb has come on the scene to claim His rightful inheritance. John's getting to see it take place. Their song continues in verse 10. says, You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And then John looked, 
and he, he says, I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads, or ten thousands of ten thousands. In the Bible, that phrase, ten thousands of ten thousands, is used to communicate an innumerable force. The host of heaven, thousands of thousands, and they are saying, singing with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This sevenfold blessing was one of the fullness of His inheritance. That is, He is worthy of everything that He is going to receive. There is not one molecule that will not fall under His supreme control. He's going to get power, riches, Wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. And it's because he deserves it. All of it. Every inkling. This is the song of the angels of heaven. They join with the creatures and elders. And they sing this song, Worthy is the Lamb to receive these things. And then the chorus grows even greater. Verse 13, And John said, And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. This was the song of all creation. Praise to the Father on the throne and to the Lamb that was slain. I don't know exactly how this would have played out, but I, I kind of get this idea. You know, we, we talked about those 24 elders there gathered around God's throne. We, if 12 of those 24 elders are the tribal leaders from the Old Testament nation Israel, and if the other 12 are the apostles of the New Testament church, I kind of wonder if if John maybe got to see himself as one of those elders. Could you imagine that just for a moment? John, John gets to just gets to see not just a worship service that's going to take place and he's not going to be a part of, but a worship service that's going to take place and he's going to be there. In fact, I kind of wonder if John maybe got to see himself and hear himself talk. You know, one of the elders turned to John and said, hey, stop crying. The line of Judah, the root of David's here. He, he's going to open this scroll. And I kind of wonder this too. You know, even if those 24 elders weren't the tribal heads of Israel or the 12 apostles from the church, John would be gathered around the throne with all of creation. In verse 13, with every creature on heaven and on earth and in the sea and under the earth and in the sea. And he would be singing just like every other created thing, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing, honor, glory, and dominion forever and ever. You know, there's a, another song that we've sung here a few times, and it comes out of Psalm chapter 150. And it repeats this phrase. It says at the beginning, at the end of the psalm, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. John got to see that happen. Everything. Everything that had breath praised the Lord. 
And the four living creatures, verse 14, kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And you know, John got to see a lot of neat stuff after that. And there's all kinds of people that talk and study through the, the, the end chapters of Revelation. But that was, that was the beginning of this future vision of Jesus coming to reign. This, this was the inauguration of Christ's kingdom. John got to see these things that are going to take place. And it changed his life. He got a picture of the beginning of the eternal worship service in heaven. And you know, I've heard people make comments about heaven before. Like, man, Jake, what's it going to be like when we get there? We're just going to be sitting in pews and singing songs to, to God the whole time out of an old hymn book? You know, that's going to be kind of boring. I don't know if I really want to think of heaven that way. Listen. Heaven is going to be an eternal worship service, but there's going to be nothing boring, mundane, routine, or simple about it. It's going to be great, and it's going to be glorious. And I think it would do us well, even if we don't get to have this same type of spiritual vision that John did on the island of Patmos, if we would take his vision and understand that ultimately this is one day the same thing all of us who know Jesus are going to experience in heaven. We're going to get to see the Lamb who was slain, the one who purchased the redemption of our sins. And we're not just going to be singing about Him, knowing that His presence is in the room, but physically unable to gaze upon Him with our eyes. Rather, our eyes are going to behold Him. We're going to see the scars and the wounds that gave us life and purchased our salvation. And we're going to sing straight to Him. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Don't you long for that day when you get to tell Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins, face to face. Jesus, I'm joining with all of these others that you've created and you've redeemed. Jesus, you are worthy of power. You are worthy of honor. You are worthy of glory. Jesus, we worship you. This is one day what we get to see and what we get to experience. John had a vision of God's glory. And I think we need the same. Stephanie's dad, Wade, is a, is a pastor, preacher, has been for several years. And we were talking about the, uh, the churches we're serving in. Of course, at, at that time, I was still here at First Baptist Walnut Ridge, and he was at a different church. He said, Jake, what do you think it would take for your church to, to really you know, fall, in, fall in love with the God that they know and, and want to worship Him every day of their life? And I thought, man, that's a big question. And I gave this answer. I don't think I understood all that I was talking about in that answer. It just, you know, it sounded good. I kind of patted myself on the back at first, and I thought, wait, I don't, I don't know if, if we could even... We could even take that. I, I said, Wade, I think if, if the church ever saw God's glory, like if they ever just got a glimpse of how great and awesome He is, that they would never be the same. Like We'd want to tell everybody in our community about Jesus. We'd want to worship Him throughout our lives each and every day. We'd be willing to follow Him and obey Him no matter what He told us to do or asked us to do. We would be ready to do whatever He said, and not just ready, but we would do it. I think that's how our church would experience revival. He said, well, 
pretty good. He said, I think you're right. That was just kind of the end of the conversation. But I don't want that to be the, the end of this conversation and this message tonight. I want you to truly pause for just a moment. If you would, bow your heads and close your eyes. And would you just think back through the things we talked about, the things that John saw in his vision, how he got a glimpse, how he caught a vision of God's glory. Would you imagine yourself standing there in the throne room of the creator of the universe, being able to actually be in his presence, and then hearing these awesome, powerful creatures sing of God's power. And then these, these leaders of heaven's kingdom fall down on the ground before this one seated upon the throne and declaring his power, that he's worthy to receive all the praise that he's going to receive. And then would you picture yourself along with a host of other believers, folks in this church that know Jesus and worship Him each Sunday morning alongside you and Sunday night alongside you. And then not just believers in this church, but believers from all other places and peoples in the world. And not just people from all other places in the world, but also people from all other times throughout history joining together as one big great choir and singing, Jesus, you are worthy to receive our praise, and we worship you. All of creation, everything that has breath, praising the Lord. Father God, we thank you so much for making us. Jesus, we thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. And God, as we await the day, that we join with a host of others and sing of your praise. May we sing of it here and now, each and every day, through each and every moment of our lives here on this earth. May the future that we one day will get to experience affect our present lives here and now. May we catch a vision of your glory that's so great that we can't help but be a different people, set apart, to share your love with the world around us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.